0: Well, if you're just joining us, we've been looking all semester long at the book of Proverbs, and we're going to continue that tonight. Each week, we're saying that wisdom uh, is something that Proverbs is trying to teach us. That the book of Proverbs is a book trying to instruct us in how to become wise men and women. You know, not much of us are very, not many of us are very familiar with our Old Testaments. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, but this is written literally um, millennia ago, and it's wisdom that is not just of man, but it is from God himself, and so we do well to listen at it. We've been saying this, as for a definition of wisdom, what is it? That wisdom is skill in walking in God's ways in God's world. Therefore, we've said that wisdom is practical, that wisdom is, um, that it has an element to it that you can learn and grow in it, and uh, also that it is something that assumes a framework about reality that God himself has made this world. There's a fabric to reality, as it were. And that to live wisely is to live with the grain, not against the grain, with that fabric. To live that way really is wise. Tonight, we're gonna to take a look, as you can imagine, uh, about what the Proverbs say about, what it, about our work. About our work. And you might think, well, why would I look about that? I'm a student. Well, uh, if you're a student, your work. work. Every, every time you hear me say work tonight, you need to think about your studies, okay? Uh, and you think about your future as well, because you're obviously going to be going into the world in some way, and you're going to be working. So this is all very, very important stuff. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, you have said that the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so we ask that you would remind us, O oh Lord, of its eternal truth. And Lord, tonight, would you teach us, would we be... Um, Will we have open ears and open eyes, would you open our ears where we're hard-hearted, as it were, and where we would listen to you that we might become wise, that we might become equipped to be able to live life in your world. And Lord, we need a word from you on our work. We so desperately need it, as we'll see. And we pray that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, you know, there's a lot of things about TCU that I love. I love working at uh, for several reasons, but there really is one thing that, um, that I can't stand. That makes me very, very angry. And I'm gonna tell you what it is in just a moment before I go there, let me tell you about the things I love. So you're supposed to do that, you know, like before you do something bad, you're supposed to give like five positives or whatever. But here's what I wanna say. I love the fun-loving social culture. I love the beautiful campus. And I love that students here really are genuinely, and uh, they generally care for one another. And my favorite thing, without a doubt, is you guys. I mean, it's the high privilege of, uh, of my and my wife's life to be in your worlds as much as you'll let us. It's just a treat. And so we love our job, and it's been a real blessing for the past seven years to be able to do this. But here's the thing that sticks in my craw, as they say. I hate the culture of busyness at TCU. I loathe it. And let me tell you why I loathe it. I know this sounds harsh, and I apologize if it does, But when i see things threaten the well-being of those that i love and care for it really does make me angry you see there is a culture of busyness here one that gets trumped around trumpeted around rather as a good thing and it's driving students mad i call it busyness righteousness if you know what i mean it is that impulse in us to out busy one another or at least to communicate how busy you are in an attempt to show the worst thing that could possibly be on this campus is not busy. Now, here's the question. If I were to just ask you on any given Thursday, hey, how are you? Do you know what the 90 percentile answer is going to be on this campus? Oh, I'm what? So busy. Why? Likely because you are, or at least you think you are. And I want to talk tonight about why I think that's so important. Listen to what one writer, Her name is Danielle Salad, and she says this. She works with students at Princeton University. And this was written several years ago, but she says this. And see if you find yourself in this description. Today's students are anxious to realize their personal hopes to be, quote, all they can be, having been taught to expect that they could realize this from the beginning of their primary education. They are fearful about their future security, and they struggle to to exert as much control over their lives as possible. As a result... They are often suffering from the weight of their various responsibilities and their fears for what lies ahead depending on a student's temperament they can either be caught up in frenzied activity or overwhelmed by their lives and thus unable to do anything the pressure in their lives keeps them from flourishing as God intended you might agree I know I do but this is an apt descriptor of what I see on campus and I'm not I'm not throwing stones, y'all. I'm just describing what I see. And then when you throw into the mix a quote that has haunted me from years from a pastoral mentor that I look up to. I don't know him personally, but I look up to him as a, as a mentor. His name is Eugene Peterson, and he writes about pastoring in this way. And he says this. He says, the busy pastor is the lazy pastor. Now, why does he say that? Because it takes work to rest. It takes discipline to stop. And so I just want to ask you this. Maybe you would consider tonight that the busy student is what? The lazy student. We're going to talk about this more and more as the weeks go on, but I want you to see this. We have a problem on our hands with the way that we think about work. In our culture, the dominant theme is to overwork and to not have a right appreciation of it. We're going to look at another side of that particularly tonight about the Proverbs talk about. But the underlying thing is, is that we have a problem with the way that we think about our work. We don't know how to approach it rightly. We're burned out. We're overstudied. We're stressed. And we worry about the future. And God is actually going to speak into that tonight by teaching us something about what he calls in the book of Proverbs, the sluggard. The sluggard. Now, the sluggard is just somebody, as we'll see in a moment, who is given over to laziness and given over to procrastination. We're going to look at that, but we have to understand a broader context first before we do. And I'm going to start out by just saying this. The first point that I want to make, do you have it, is the givenness of our work. The givenness of our work. Now, I've got two other points that I want to make and I'll hold off on announcing them for now. But here's what I want you to see about the givenness of our work. I want you to see in the uh, Proverbs that we read a couple of things. Take a look with me at the Proverbs 12:11, where it reads, "...whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense." And again, down at 28:19, "...whoever works his land will have plenty of bread." It's almost the exact same thing. "...but he who follows worthless p- pursuits will have plenty of poverty." What's that what's the writer trying to make? He's trying to say this. That there really is an order to the world. And that when you get into the right the right ordering of things, that it is through our work that we find flourishing. Now how the Proverbs can say that is very, very simple. It sets those statements in the broader context of what the Bible itself teaches us about our work. And listen to what I'm doing here. I'm going rogue on my notes here. I'm totally scratching what I spent all afternoon writing because I need to say something differently. It's on here. So just get ready, okay? Um, the Bible talks about our work in this way. Many of, many of us think about our work as being laborious, as being cumbersome, as being something that stinks, and why would anybody ever get excited about their work? But you need to understand what the Bible actually teaches about what work is. In the beginning, when God created man and woman, He gave them two primary tasks. One of them was to be fruitful and multiply, which means have sex, make babies, and populate the earth. And the second is this, to cultivate and have dominion over the creation that God Himself had made. In other words, what I want you to hear saying is, is this, is that from the very beginning, the Christian story has asserted that work is an intrinsically good thing. That work itself was something that was found in paradise. That before sin entered into the world, work existed and work was good. Moreover, that human beings, that men and women were made to work. Why? Because they're image bearers of God. They reflect God himself. And what does God do? The opening pages of the Bible? God has got His hands in the dirt, making things, making the world, creating human beings. This is the story that the Bible asserts. work is given as an incredibly beautiful and good thing, and that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the givenness of things, the givenness of our work. Let me read a text from you. This comes from Genesis 1.28 when he says this, and God blessed them, that is man and woman. And God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply." and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Y'all, here's what I want you to see. That from the very beginning, man's task was to work. And it was something so central, central to who, who, uh, what a human being is. Now listen, imagine work, imagine having your idea of work shaped like that. How might that change the way that you think about your studies on campus and what you're going to go do one day? I love what the writer Dorothy Sayer says. Brittany, if you go to the next slide. She was a writer from the uh, writing after World War II, a British woman, one of my favorite writers. And she writes this, and I think it's so great. She says, work is not primarily a thing that one does to live. Think about that. But the thing one lives to do. It is or it should be the full expression of the worker's faculties, the thing in which he or she finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction and the medium in which he or she offers himself to God. What does this mean? This is telling you something radically different than what the culture is telling you about what work is. Because it is, it is an extremely high view of our work. Because it's saying that human beings were given a task to work. And that itself is, is about how, is how God's mission is going to advance in the world. See, here's what you think. Most of us think of our work as a necessary evil to make a paycheck. And that's not the biblical view of what work is at all. Most of us actually think things like this: well, I'm gonna work real hard, I'm going to work make as much as money as I can, I'm gonna retire by the time I'm 45. And I want you to hear me say this loud and clear. That is not a biblical view at all. It's not. You were meant to work. If you quit working, guess what? You dehumanize yourself. I know it's our culture to go retire. Retire is not in the Bible. How are you having your mind shaped by what the Bible teaches about our very work? And what that means is is that what would it look like for you to be able to get up on a Wednesday and to walk into your classroom knowing that's where God has put you? To walk into a classroom and walk into a chemistry class or engineering class or business class and say, I get to do this. I'm not just talking about being thankful for the sake of being at TCU. That's great. I'm talking about, no, God's task that He has called you to during the season of your life is to work diligently because that's who you were made to be. And here's the other thing I want you to see. And I'm, again, I'm, still, I'm totally rogue right now still. I want you to see this. Most of us think <clears throat> that the important work for the Christian is to go do ministry, missionary service, or to work in the church. And I'm throwing a grenade on that, and I'm blowing it up. Because the Bible doesn't teach it. So, for those of you that want to be nurses... For those of you that do want to be engineers. For those that want to dance or act or paint. For those of you who want to watch finances grow and to help them help other people do so. For those of you that want to teach, hear me loud and clear. The Bible does not hold a split and say there's holy or sacred work over here. And then there's secular lower work over here. The Bible just does not teach that. It rips out the category together and says it's all holy work. It's all spiritual work. And my job as a pastor is no better than yours if you want to be a physician or if you want to be a car mechanic. You see what I'm saying? What I'm hoping you will see is that God has called you into this world. And the primary mission field that you will have to bring about fame for his name is in your work. And listen, I'm still going rogue. Not just so that you can use your nursing career, your dance career, or whatever, so that you can evangelize somebody. That's not what I'm talking about either. Christian work is good work well done. Do you see what I'm saying? You want to be a Christian nurse? You go learn the human body. You go learn about pharmacology, and you do it well. You want to be a Christian engineer? I'm sorry, you're going to have to do well with statics. You're going to have to be good at it. You want to, be, uh, you want to dance? Well, then you might need to find a way to get into Juilliard. You might need to find a good agent, and you better practice. And all of that, hear me, is Christian work. That is godly work. That's what I'm hoping you will see. We need to learn how to recover that. Because some of y'all live paralyzed. And you think, what God wants me to do, to be faithful to Him, is to go to India and like be a missionary. And I want to say, well, what happens when you get to India? When you start telling people about Jesus, are you going to tell them to go? Somebody's got to stay. Somebody's got to do medicine. Somebody's got to do banking and finance. And wouldn't that be wonderful if God's people knew and saw their vocation as their primary calling of ministry and witness in the world? Y'all, we need to recover this. And so long as you come to RUF, I will trumpet this as long as you're here. It's so dadgum important. We've lost it and we've got to recover it. And I think it's perfect for you to think about as you're thinking about your future. Okay, I'm going back to my notes now. Not only has God told us about the givenness of our work, but he talks about the resistance to it. Here's why I want you to see, secondly, the resistance that we have in our work. And it's now that we can begin to understand something about what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the sluggard. When the proverb talks about the sluggard, it has... Our idea of laziness in mind, that procrastinating frame of mind that says, I'll do my work later or not right now. And now you can just imagine, if you have a view of work that's just the doldrums and it sucks to do, you could understand sluggerliness, right? You could understand that. But when you begin to recover the biblical vision of what it means to work, you can now understand why the Bible says that to be a slugger, to be slothful, to be lazy really is a moral issue because you're hindering God's work in the world. That's what it's trying to get at. And why do we do this? Why is there a resistance? I think there's resistance because of one of two reasons. We tend to overvalue our work and we tend to undervalue our work. And I'd like to highlight those for you real quick. How and which way do we tend to, as it were, overvalue, overvalue our work? Now, let's do undervalue first, because that's what's first in my notes. We're going to talk about undervaluing our work. Here it is. It means this. It means that we view view work as something that is, you know, we're just indifferent to it. It's just getting up and going through the motions. It's just clocking in from 9 to 5, and it's absolutely devoid of any sort of meaning in God's world. But... When, I, when you begin to catch the vision for what the Bible has, you begin to see that your work has eternal significance. I'm coming back to that. You might go, what? You mean me being a physician has eternal significance? Yes. I thought only ministry and missionaries had eternal significance. No. I'm going to show you how. It's because you probably have a wrong view of what heaven looks like. But I'm going to show you before we get done. I promise. We undervalue work. Think about it like this. The shirt on your back, if you've got a cotton t-shirt on like I do, how many of y'all grow cotton? How many of you dyed the shirt that you got? How many of you sewed and stitched it together? And by the way, you put it in a loom together. So let me think about, listen like, what I want to say. Assuming that it's cotton, somebody had to prepare the soil for the cotton for that cotton plant. They had to plant it, they had to care for it as it grew, and then they had to harvest it. Then somebody else had to ship it, which by the way, somebody had to make the truck and all the parts. To, the, to get the cotton to the factory. And I mean, I can't even get in this illustration even further before I hope you can see the amount of work that has gone on to get your shirt on your back. And all of that is because God loves to clothe you. And He has put people in this world and made them great at farming and made them great at transportation and logistics and made them great at machinery and made them great at it. People like you, for the common good, this is the vision the Bible gives us. We have a tendency to undervalue a work because we don't see how profoundly important it is and how it's a blessing to our neighbor. That's what, that's what I want you to see. Secondly, the other temptation. We have a temptation as well to what? Not just undervalue our work, but to overvalue it. Here's what I want you to see about this. I want you to think about your work in this way, that we can attach to our work ultimate meaning and ultimate significance. This is my own two cents on it. We live in a world that has thrown the idea of something transcendent. By that I mean something big and outside of us. We've thrown that away. We don't like. We live in a world that does not like the idea of God at all. And yet our hearts still long for Him. And your heart still crave for them. And so we're still longing for something to attach that sense to. And most of us cling to our work to give us ultimate meaning in our life. And when you do that, you have overvalued work. You have put on your work, your very identity, your very personhood, in a way that your work cannot sustain you. Here's what I mean by that. Think about your studies. Some of you know what I mean. When you get the paperback and it's got the big dog on it, big D, okay? And you go, and you go, uh, what? Why do I, why does my life feel like it's crumbling right now? Why? Because you've overvalued your work. Why do you get upset? Why do you stress about the chemistry test? Why are you anxious about it? It's because you overvalue your work. You're putting ultimate significance. Into it, and I'm telling you, no better time to start seeing that than when you're in your 20s and in college. Because I'm telling you, it does not get easier once you get out of school; it just gets harder and harder and harder. And I would love for you to be men and women who go out in this world, because you know what happens when you begin to see that, and you can get your meaning off of your work like that. You actually become a fantastic physician. You become a fantastic engineer because you quit using your work to give you ultimate meaning. Y'all, y'all tracking with me? You become an awesome actor when you quit saying that acting has to be my definition in life. I've talked to athletes time and time again. When they sort of have a come-to-Jesus meeting and see I am not how I perform on the athletic field, that Jesus gives me my identity. Do you know what happens in their game most of the time? Their performance shoots up because they love the game again. Because the game is not giving them their definition in life. What I want you to see is, is the resistance that we have, and how does all this relate to sluggardliness? If you are undervaluing in your work, or if you are overvaluing it, you will be prone to being indifferent, to not caring, to procrastinating, and to being lazy in your work. That's what it is. I told you we have a problem with our work, and I want you to sh- see now how we can begin to find redemption. In our work, we were meant to work not to get an identity, but because we already have one. And seeing that and that alone will lead us into what I hope you'll begin to see is the redemption of our work. So, where can we find redemption for our work? Well, the Proverbs tell us consider these first Proverbs that I wrote down here. I love them. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. What's, What's he saying? He's saying this If you struggle with laziness, If you struggle with procrastination, the ants become your teacher. Look at them. Consider them. Let your eyes fall on them because of the way that they work. And look what it tells us. It says this, without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. This is saying what? That if you want to find redemption in your work, if you want to become wise with your work, you need to see this. You need to see that that they actually are doing the task that they were made for. And that's amazing. Ants don't wake up one day and say, you know, I don't think I'm going to work. I think I'm going to do it. It's not feeling it today. They just go out and do it because that's what ants do. Do you think about your work that way? You were made for a task. You see? The ants will teach you if you'll look. It's also interesting that the point is simple. Our work can be rightly redeemed if we will become wise. But part of that is actually going and doing the work itself. I I mean, sometimes the most Christianly thing to do in your work or your studies is just actually to go do them. You you know what I mean? that's the most godly thing you can do tomorrow. If you have a class, go to class. That is being faithful to Jesus because you're working. What a beautiful picture. We need to recover this idea of our work. Notice too what the Proverbs say about the diligent. Verse 13, 4. That's the opposite of the sluggard. They are richly supplied. They have what they need. Why? Remember, we live in God's world, the way that He, the one that He made. And as the Proverbs show us over and over again, there is a grain to this universe. And while there are exceptions, the general rule that God has put into the created fabric of reality. Is this that when you work you bring about flourishing for yourself and for others? And so when we work faithfully and diligently, we are going with the grain of God's world, and therefore becoming wise. Listen to what Paul writes in Second Thessalonians. He puts it this way if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul understood his old testament. But here's the question, y'all. How do we find the power? to let let our work be the good that it is without giving it that identity-defining status in our lives. Well, here's where the hope comes. We were not told with clarity until we get to the New Testament where Jesus himself says this, Brittany, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is he saying? Jesus means this. You have to let me be the one who defines who you are. Not your work or what your work gives you. You have to come and find your rest in me because in the end, It is this. It is only Jesus' work for you that can give you the identity and value and purpose that your heart most longs for. Why? Why is that the case? Because in the garden where our work was cursed, it came about because we screwed it up. Our first parents, and by extension and being in them, declared all Out rebellion when we decided to go do life on our own and live, here it is, as our own bosses. But on the cross, Jesus himself took on the punishment that that rebellion and our rebellion too deserved. And he was beaten by the Romans for it. And he bled for it. And it brought him to his death for it. In other words, He lost all significance, all glory, so that you and I might get it forever. That's profound work. And that's a profound work of God for us on, on, his, on our behalf. And when we come to Him, resting in Him, and what He has done and secured for us, then I want you to see this, that your work can become work again. It can become a way of blessing the people around you. It can become something that you enjoy because you're no longer giving to it the power to define who you are. I mean, wouldn't it be great to let chemistry be chemistry? Wouldn't it be great to think about your job and let it be a job that you use to bless the world and to glorify God with? That's what, our, that's what, the, that's what the Bible's definition of work is meant to be. In turn, work gets put back into its proper place as a calling where we labor and serve for the good of our neighbor, and for the glory of God. I'm going to close by this illustration. Um, it is one of my favorite uh, of all time. Uh, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, his book on work, Tim Keller um, writes about this story about J.R.R. Tolkien. For those of you that don't know, Tolkien was the writer of The Lord of the Rings. And a little bit of backstory on that, sh- that story that he wrote. He hated his efforts on that story. He probably wrote The Lord of the Rings every chapter multiple times because he was never satisfied with the work itself. And at one moment where he had massive writer's block, for those of you that are writers, you'll know this, he actually put the story aside and he began to write about something else. And he wrote a book called Leaf by Niggle. Leaf by Niggle. And I want to tell you the story about Leaf by Niggle. This is a Tolkien book. Tolkien submitted a short story about a painter named Niggle and his work on painting a tree. Now, it's important to know that the word niggle means to work at in an excessive way, to spend too much time on petty details. That means to niggle about, okay? And all his life, Niggle had this idea and this vision of this beautiful countryside, this beautiful picture. And he said, that will be my life work. I'm going to paint it. And because it was so large, he needed a ladder to get to the top of the canvas to begin to paint it. And so he began. And, and, and the thing about it is, is that Nigel himself, because he was so particular about painting, his whole life he worked on the canvas with this great vision in mind of this beautiful painting of this beautiful tree. And you know how much he got done? One leaf. That's all he got done. Why? Because he was somebody who painted leaves better than trees. But he was also, also someone who gave his life away for his friends. He cared for the needs of the people around him. Well, one day it happens that Nigel finds out that it's time for him to die and to move from one life to the next. And as he does, the people that take over where he was living see his canvas and they walk in, and it's, it's big and bright. And all that's on the canvas is that one leaf. And so they take the painting and they put it into a museum. And a few people saw it there in that small little town. But the story doesn't end there. Nigel himself, as he crossed in to heaven itself, he catches something out of the glimpse of 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 an eye. And you know what it is? It's his tree. It's his tree. And he walks up to it. And after his death, he sees this vision of the tree. And I just want to read a little bit about what is written. Keller notes Keller notes this in the book. He talks about Nickel seeing the tree and saying, it's a gift and it's complete and it's finally finished. The tree that I had been working on all my life and I only got one leaf done is now completed. And listen to what Keller writes. Everyone wants to be successful rather than forgotten, and everyone wants to make a difference in life. But everyone will be forgotten, and all will come to nothing, unless there is God. Friends, do you know that the gospel proclaims, in the Lord your labor is not in vain? And this applies not only to your ministry, but all of your work as well. And it is true of yours if you are in Christ. In short, your work will last for eternity, no matter how unfinished it lives. God says this, Jesus says this, Behold, I am making all things new. He is renewing the cosmos. Heaven is not just floating off away in some cloud and, plucking the strings on a heart for forever. It's not that. You know what you're going to do in heaven? You're going to work. You're going to bring about God's glory in heaven and the new earth when they join together. It's a very physical existence. And that's what you're going to do. And imagine whatever task or trade that you have without any sort of cursing. Where the energy in equals the energy out where you finally get to paint the tree, whatever it is that you do. That's the Christian vision of your work. And it's beautiful. And how can we know that it'll happen? Because Jesus Himself, His work on the cross will last forever too. He Himself was no sluggard, but remains our Savior, giving life and true meaning to our work. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we need a new vision for our work more so than we know. And we pray that the scriptures would inform and teach us about it. And Lord, would you help us to see that we can have hope because of what you have done for us and for the world at large. You didn't just come to save us that so that's what you did. You came to renew the cosmos. And we get to play a small part in that. Our work gets taken up into your redemptive work to make the world beautiful again. This is amazing. Help us to see it and help us to believe it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.